Hey, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on, a, on another episode of Disruption Now. This is a special episode. Uh, the book that we're talking about is Color Him Father, and it's about Black fatherhood, but particularly Black fatherhood and loss. And um, when we were taping this, um, my sister, my uh, big sister, was in the middle of uh, struggling to overcome the flu. Now, she was uh, born with a chronic heart condition, but she's been a fighter all her life, and she's gotten past uh, so many times when it looked like she wasn't going to make it. Uh, so we, we always were optimistic and uh, assumed she was going to make it past this, but uh, this time she didn't. So in the midst of talking about Black fatherhood, talking about families, um, we ended up losing my, my sister just a little while later. And um, seeing my family go through that has been hard. Going through it myself has been hard. It's really the first time I have seen uh, death up close and personal. And um, I'm thankful my sister was in a better place, but it's, it's a new experience. And I, and I think it opened up my mind to how much we need to talk about these things um, and be vulnerable and understand that's a part of the process. It doesn't make you less of a man to cry. It doesn't make you less of a man to, uh, to not understand. And this was a hard thing to go through in this moment for me, but these men, as, as you'll hear in the story, went through stories that were just as hard or harder, and they found a way through. And they're disrupting this narrative that, that the black male is absent from their family. They're not. We just don't hear the stories, and you know that's our job to really disrupt that. So. I want to give a prayer out to my sister who will actually be doing her homecoming funeral uh, this weekend. So I hope you enjoy the show and um, I, hope you, I hope you gain some insight from it and I hope you can learn or see yourself somewhere in this. Have a blessed one. Uh, when Kia passed away, one of the um, challenges Kia and my daughter, uh, I was uh, struck by the fact that um, like anyone else, when something like that happens, some kind of trauma like that in your life, you start searching for answers, you start sure. searching for material, you start anything that you can grasp that sort of helps you begin to make sense of it. Even though I'm a psychologist, um, obviously I couldn't treat myself, so I sure. needed to... But they tell lawyers yeah. to, don't be your own lawyer. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, but yeah, like it's a bad idea. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. that. <laughs> if you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm Rob Richardson. You know, we like to disrupt common narratives and constructs here. And I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast today because it certainly does that. Uh, we have Dr. Lawrence Drake with us, who is the author of Color Him Father. Also, one of the, uh, uh, I guess, um, people that tell their story is Michael Bennett, who's also in the book. And um, you're going to, this, is, this has been a great book, I think, really to try to, sh to really disrupt the narratives that are around uh, black males as fathers, that black males are absent as fathers. Uh, that's something you hear all the time in the media. It's not something you, you're going to hear on Disruption Now. One, it's said all the time. And two, it's not true. And we're going to talk about that today and really talk about it from the experience of what it means to be a black man who is invested in, in, in his child's life, what it's actually like to go through tragedy, what it's like to also not be perfect. Look, I think all three of us here are 
have been divorced before, have had our own challenges. And at Disruption, we like to have real conversations about our community because I don't think we can really go about changing constructs or changing our community until we actually have honest input, honest conversations. So that's what brings us here today. And I tell you, uh, uh, Color Him Father uh, really was a transformative book for me. It is a hard book to read, but it's a great book. And I think it's a necessary book uh, for Everyone, I think for white families too, but especially black families, because we can talk about trying to change uh, the narrative to try to get America to change the narrative, but change starts with us. It starts internally, it starts with our community. This book really helps to do that and really is a, is a really in-depth look of what it means to be a father, what it means to be a black male, what it means to be vulnerable. And I think you're gonna really enjoy this discussion and I highly encourage you to get the book. So. Gentlemen, welcome here. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you Rob. Good to yeah. see you this afternoon. Yeah, so always good to be back in D.C. Uh, you know, I saw this book, Dr. Lawrence, and uh, I wanted, as a, as a way, as I explained earlier, I saw it as more than the stories. The stories were hard, as I told Michael. They were hard to get through, but they were necessary. Um, but I saw it as more than the stories that were obviously emotional, that were obviously tragic. I saw this as a kind of a, a of a blueprint to disrupt the the narratives about what it means to be a black male father in america um that's what i saw this as but what was your take us through why you wrote this book and why you wrote it in the way you did in terms of not only telling your story but telling stories of other black male fathers who had you know similar stories to yourself like what, what brought that to your mind and why did you do that yeah so um you know when i um when when uh when Kia passed away, one of the um, challenges, Kia, my daughter, uh, I was uh, struck by the fact that, um, like anyone else, when something like that happens, some kind of trauma like that in your life, you start searching for answers, you start sure. searching for material, you start anything that you can grasp that sort of helps you begin to make sense of it. Even though I'm a psychologist, um, obviously I couldn't treat myself, so I sure. needed to... But they tell lawyers yeah. too, don't be your own yeah. lawyer. I'm a, I'm a lawyer, but yeah. like don't, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. It's not good. So I started looking and and um, and there was really nothing for me that spoke to me as a father and more specifically as a black father. But the irony of it all is I knew ten other black men who had also lost their children. And my first inclination was actually to approach the book uh, from a scholarly perspective, to right. actually uh, do qualitative interviews with families and really talk about loss because one of the other stereotypical but yet actual factual um, antidotes about the black family is that we don't seek mental health counseling. Yeah, I think, uh, and we're going to talk about that in detail yeah. some, so yeah. hold, hold that thought before you go down that rabbit okay. hole, but I definitely but, agree. But And, and because of that, um, I thought, well, okay, if I do that, then it's going to be exposed to a journal uh, and, you know, the scholars and the academics will read the journal, but nobody else will. Right. And I said, well, that's not going to work. And plus, I can't really speak in a in a real time, honest and authentic voice as a black father when I'm when I'm operating as a scholar. Uh, just the framework in which you do research in the academic community is not the same. Well, and I think it's one of the just <laughs> the challenges of people who communicate who think just because you have great information that it will be relayed to the human brain. Correct. It's about converting hearts and minds, not minds and hearts. Exactly. So if you don't tell the story yeah. in a way that connects, right. your point never gets through. So that's right. a great point. Right. So, so after that, um, I 
realized that I knew these men, 10 of them, and they were all my friends. They were right. all people I knew. Uh, some of them I had known for as long as 50 years. And so I, I, uh, I said, look, if I'm gonna write this book, it needs to accomplish at least three things. One is it needs to celebrate our children. I don't want my daughter, uh, nor the children of the other men who contributed to the book, to feel uh, that this was just an exercise in talking about what happened. Right. But it's really an exercise in celebrating our children. Um, right. Making sure that the footprint that they'd left in this world um, was going to be here in perpetuity. Is that and, why you talk about Kia in present tense? So I know it's something, something you do in the book. You, yes. you say that uh, you mentioned her as present right now. Yes. The, the reason for that is because of what you to celebrate her life and make sure that folks know the impact she has continually. Yes. And, and, and Michael and I have a very similar view. People will ask us, they ask me how many children I have, you know, and I say I have five. Uh, even though that Kia is is not physically here, right? She's still my oldest, and my and she's one of the five. And the point is, is that I want people to understand that she's present. So that's one. The second reason was I wanted to talk about dispelling this myth about black fatherhood in real time. Right. This idea that black fathers are not present, um, that they don't, that they're not attentive to their children, and of course we even had some most recent research that Pew did that really talks about the fact that black fathers, even if they're not with the mothers, are more present than their white counterparts. Yeah. Then thirdly, I wanted to be able to speak to this idea um, that black fathers, <laughs> excuse me, that young, you. young men who were not fathers yet, that they could see in us themselves oh. and they could see uh. that okay if he's going through that and this is what he's been through should I have to ever face a tragedy like that how would I handle it but more importantly how do I need to think about myself because since 1619 you know black fathers have been excluded from the family purposely right and I want them to understand that fact so those three objectives really were the impetus and more importantly the foundation for writing the book so Michael how did you Obviously, you know each other, but how did you get yourself to write this book? Given your, given, given what you had, given what you went through. I mean, it's, um, it's hard. I'm sure it's still hard to yeah. talk about. How did you get yourself there, and why did you do it? Well, I, I guess, and, and I want to comment on Larry's point sure. about the, uh, our daughters being present. Uh, Larry, uh, Kia transitioned about two months before Krista did. Um, and I didn't know that Kia was transitioning then, and I don't think Larry knew like where we were with regard to Krista. But interestingly enough, and I, and I am uh, adamant about the fact that Krista's here. Right. Uh, she simply transitioned, uh, and, right. and it's not just because she's in my memory. She's right. actually with me. Yeah. and. And, and having an impact. Uh, her legacy is here, of, of which uh, I have a five-year-old granddaughter that is Krista's daughter. But um, and, and that's a, such an interesting story that, in, you know, you talk about this more, but I remember this point in the book where, where, where you knew it was coming towards the end, and then your, uh, your daughter popped the question and said, look, I'm going to give you joint custody with your ex-wife. I said, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. mean, you have, of course, you have no 
no choice, but you're going to well, do it. Well, you know, I, I said, that's a really odd thing to do. She said, well, yeah, but I, I said, well, I, you know, we got divorced. I, you, know, I, you, know, you give a, you know, a, 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 a ex, my ex-wife and I are going to have joint custody of our granddaughter. She said, dad, work it out. Yeah. Uh, and what are you going to say? You got nothing to yeah. say. Like, uh. <laughs> and so, um, but for me, it was the most it was the most profound um, conversation that Larry and I started out with on the book because I, I really was and I always tease him about it. I was an afterthought, uh, uh, but. Um, uh, and we're not going to get into that today. No, we're not saying that. But, um, well, you were the second one mentioned, so like, you're, the, you're the first one after him. But, but uh, Larry, I was, Krista uh, is a, um, a singer and actor, and, and uh, she's a, she, her uh, profession was musical theater. And her very first professional play uh, when she was in college was a, um, uh, was a, like, was a play called Once on This Island. Yeah. And uh, it was on Broadway. It had won a uh, Tony for Best Musical Revival um, in 2018. So I said, I've got to see this. Krista actually won uh, or was, uh, like, I guess one is the right word, uh, the, the um, uh, lead uh, right. when she was 19 years old and she went to audition just for a bit part and she was so uh, thrilled to be able to win uh, the uh, lead with all these professional actors there in uh, Chicago. But at any rate, I was in New York uh, and waiting for my wife to finish getting dressed to walk across the street to go see Once on this Island and my uh, cell phone rang. Larry and I don't, don't talk <clears throat> a lot by cell phone so I saw the number it says from Atlanta who is this so anyway I answered and it's Larry right. and he started telling me about the uh, book project and uh, if I would be interested slash willing to participate. Right. Uh, and he said he had had, I think, three conversations with other people who said, you've got to get Michael Bennett in this right. book. Um, and I'm waiting to go across the street to see my daughter's first uh, professional production. Right. And I mean, it, it, it and, and the answer was, of course. Right. I have to do that. I mean, that was just profound. And Krista tended to play with me. Right. Uh, and I won't do a spoiler with regard to, to her story in the book, but it was, it, it was, you know, and, and, and Larry had absolutely no idea where I was, uh, no idea, uh, uh, you know, what was happening. <clears throat> and so that conversation at that time uh, was just, you know, was really clear to me that this was something that uh, I had to do and that Krista wanted me to do. And so we did. Uh, I have to say it was probably, uh, it was some of the toughest and best times uh, that I had right. uh, writing that chapter. Um, and I probably went through 15 drafts uh, of <laughs> versions. I started trying to do it during the day and I just couldn't. Yeah. So I would do the drafts, the writing and the rewriting. Uh, I start about 10 o'clock at night. Right. And I would generally uh, work on it most of the night. Right. Um, and because of the laughter and the tears and everything else. So it, it, it is, um, and it, it was beyond 
beyond uh, a therapeutic. Right. Uh, it actually established a uh, just a another level of relationship. Yep. Something that I, that really uh, kind of stuck out to me in the book, and you both had this, whether it was intentional or not. I saw it in your stories. I saw it in all the stories. Mm-hmm. Was this fact of this struggle, and uh, I see it now myself as a father. Right. You, you a balance between pushing your kids mm-hmm. and then figuring out where they actually are and where they need to be based upon their unique personalities yeah. versus pushing them to where you want them to be for, for your own ego satisfaction. Right. I, at least I can say for that was that's what I drew out of this. Yeah. Uh, I thought about Kia, her making that winning shot when you talked about her. Yeah. She's in, yeah. in, the, in the books, you know, she makes a winning shot right. and it's, I don't want to do this anymore. And I can think of myself as a parent, like, I was mean you know, I just, <laughs> the first thing yeah. I'd say like right. you not only you are going what do you mean like because exactly. I'm in the basketball I'm a basketball right. coach like, right. I'm, like exactly. I'm like no you're, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna go back and that's what I, I'm just telling you what yeah. I'm really thinking no, 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 I'm just I, being very honest I right the, right I, I had the exact same and reaction I, and, as a point. and I want you to talk about that and you had a similar one yeah. and I can tell that you know uh, Krista had uh, you know had challenges figuring out what she wanted to do sometimes the motivation and you're like you know you 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 probably thought she was going to be he, uh, xyz chris had a hold of the path about what she's going to do it is not what you had in mind and how and i'm asking this for uh, for the other parents people listening and i'm asking for myself mm-hmm. right how do you find that right balance because you know there is some you want to make sure your kids are okay they can take care of themselves then they're going to have the right motivation they have the right mindset versus letting them be their own unique personality i I find it kind of hard i mean just how looking back now that you've had this whole experience what do you draw from that to give advice to both both of you i'd like to hear it for myself and for everyone else i'll let i'll let michael go first and then i'll i'll give you my two cents i uh um i tell you one of the things i learned in this process was that everybody's got their own path and um, we have to be really careful not to see someone's, someone else's life, even your child, through your filter. The reality is everything that you see and your whole perspective in life is really is, is driven by your own filter. You know, yep. your experiences and how you see and what you think is good and not right. good. And, you know, everybody deserves the right to travel their path. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that I um, uh, end up doing with Kristen, I had, uh, uh, at the time, three children that I had to do. So by the time I got to Krista, she was number three. I had had a little experience right. um, uh, with that wall in my head. Um, so, you know, you really have to, um, to, to try and see their life as best you can through their filter and be there to support and to guide as best you can, right. but not to create, try to create the path for them. And so that's one of the things that if you take a look particularly at uh, Kia's story, and I think Krista's story too, and maybe some throughout all, is you've got to be careful uh, to make sure that uh, you acknowledge and support their path. Right. Um, and that's hard to do. That's very hard to do. I'm and asking, is, how, yeah. how do you do that? In pr- I agree with what you're saying in theory. In, but in practice, <laughs> about like in practice right. for me it was about uh, biting my tongue a lot I remember um, uh, uh, Krista's mom and I uh, end up divorcing uh, uh, right at her senior year right and I used to and I took all the kids to school and so I continued to take her to school and uh, and I let her talk while we were in the car um, and I would not respond to anything 
And I, so she would tell me all kinds of stuff. Right. And I'd sometimes tell her mother if I thought she was getting a little too close to, to, to the edge. Right. But at the end of the day, you really have to give them an opportunity to be themselves. The other thing that I will add to that, and I'll shut up, is that in order to, for you to do that and in order for them to feel comfortable traveling their path with you, or, or traveling their path in front of you, uh, you've got to give them a bird's eye view into who you are. Mm. You've <clears throat> got to be, you've got to let them see the real person because oh. your children are going to put you on a pedestal. Yeah. And what they see is the result of all of the garbage that you've been through or yep. that we've been through, I'll say. Um, and they don't know that you went through the same kind of things that they did. Right. And it's important for them to get to know you. Yeah, I, and I, I spent right. a lot of time trying to make sure, particularly after, uh, particularly even prior to the divorce, but when the relationship started to, to, to really deteriorate, but getting to, to so that they knew me. Right. And that they didn't have any misconceptions about who I was. Right. At that point, then they're a lot, they're a lot, they're, they're able to tell you and show you who they are. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I think, I think I would just add to that, you know, the, there's sort of an, there's a, in the book, I talk about this idea of rage and vulnerability. Yep. And this idea of rage, um, is something that we don't allow the kids to see except when they're not doing what we tell them to do. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's a good point. But then on the vulnerability side, we don't show them Ever. our foibles. We don't show them our mistakes. No, it's something that we don't want right. to... We feel like that's not being a man. It's not being... A, especially right. a black man to be even stronger. Right. And we have to present this united front where right. a man never shows vulnerability. Right. A man never cries. And I that's mean, a I, dangerous thing because I think that... Um, the, the one thing that is clear to me more now than ever is this idea that of how much courage it takes to be vulnerable for us. That we actually have to have more courage to be vulnerable. And I think we have to teach our children this. I think what, what happened towards the last leg of Kia's journey is that we had a lot of conversation about my vulnerabilities. Yeah. About, you know, I know you think your dad can do anything, but your dad's really... You know, she said, well, I don't think you're perfect, Dad. And I said, no, but you know that. I said, but right. I really want you to, to, to understand how difficult it is for me. And, and I, I talk about in the book this one moment, just after she had had the surgery, she was back in her room, and, and she was had all these tubes coming out of her. And I was standing there at her bedside holding her hand. And she said, Dad, can you believe I'm alive? I made it. I made it through. And I said, yeah, honey, of course. I said, you, you, you're going to conquer this thing. But she saw something in my face that I had no idea was there. It was that I was scared. I was, I was just terrified <clears throat> right. at all these tubes that were coming out of her body. Yeah. And she said to me, she said, Dad, why are you looking at me like that? I mean, because she picked it up. I, I had no clue yeah. that that's what I was giving off. And, she, and I said, I guess I just hate to see all these tubes coming out of my little girl. And when she raised up out of that bed, all of about 97 pounds, right. and pulled me close to her, and I could feel her ribs. That's how skinny she had become at this point. And she was hugging me as hard as her strength would allow. That was a teachable moment for me. Because that said that she was saying to me, Dad, it's okay for you to be vulnerable with me in this moment. It's right. okay. <clears throat> and you don't need to feel bad that you feel bad. Know that I'm, I'm here for you too. 
when, when our children, you know, and, and Michael B's had, you know, uh, moments like that with Krista, yeah. um, all of the fathers throughout the book have had those moments. They're remarkable moments. They're moments that you never forget. If you notice that most of us can tell you the day and almost the time in which they left and transitioned to the other place, to the other side physically, because those things are indelibly emblazoned in your mind, as well as different things on that journey. But I would say that, you know, to answer your question, really being able to have the courage to be vulnerable is is the number one way in which the agency of our children gets released. Right. Because they have to feel like they have agency, that they are, they're in control of their own destiny. They, we're just guides. And the older that I get and the older my children get, the more I realize that. Right. The more I realize <clears throat> that it's not my job to raise them. I, I did some of that very right. early on. Right. And the older they get, they take more authority over and they want more agency. Sure. So then you just become a guide. It's like taking a journey and you're the guide and not the person telling them what to study while they're on the journey. Yeah. That's that's a very different way to parent. But it yeah. is the way that I think we allow ourselves and our children to grow um, and become who they truly want to be. Mm. So, uh, you know, w this brings up a lot of great points about mental health. Think, and you think about like that, as you said, a lot of black men are in between that balance of rage and vulnerability, rarely going to the vulnerability, and that's creating more issues and more vulnerability, frankly. Yeah. Um, how do we go about that as a community to think about how we tackle that really? And how would you, knowing your experience now, because you've, you've gone through an obviously life-changing, both of you, traumatic experience, I would ask the question this way. Seeing, if you can go back to your younger self, this will help us too, Knowing what you know now about vulnerability, yeah. what would you say to yourself then? Wow. Um, Can I answer that first? Yeah, and go ahead. You, and let you think. Yeah. I, you know, I I would say to myself, give yourself a break. You know, you are not. You don't have all the answers. And I think to, to listening to Larry and, and talk about Kia and one of the things that that uh, Krista and I experienced, particularly uh, Krista uh, uh, had osteosarcoma. It was about a three and a half year journey, <clears throat> particularly in that second half of the journey. Um, uh, I had to be real clear. I didn't have all the answers about no. things. And it was enough to be there. It was enough to be present. One of the things I, I did a recording uh, at Christus uh, that was played at Christus service, and I thank God for allowing me to be her father. And I also thank God for allowing me to uh, to do or to to think I was doing what I really love. The thing that I love more than anything, and I mean that sincere, more than anything uh, in life, is being a father. That is the single biggest joy in my life. And God allowed me to be uh, to believe that I was Krista's protector and her teacher. The reality is God was her protector right. and God was her teacher. Right. And I, it was just an illusion for me right. that made me feel good. But 
once you and, and and it doesn't mean that you don't continue to try to do those things. Yeah. But if you recognize that you don't really have the power to do but so much of that anyway, right. and you're simply acting as a vessel for God, and God is doing both those things in, in, in other ways other than just through you, then you can relax and just simply do the best that you mm. can. And, you know, and because the reality is, I tell my kids all the time, my job was like the guy who was trying to get this, this big pane of glass from one side of the room to the other. I'm going to, my hands are greasy and dirty and all that. <clears throat> my job is to get that glass from one side of the room to the other and don't drop the glass. Right. You know, but by the time you get to the other side of the room, it's going to be messy and nasty and right, dirty right. and all kinds of stuff. But don't drop the glass. Right. You know, and so and God is the one that cleans up the glass on the other side, you know. And so Krista said to me in the last week uh, that she was in the hospital and, and we never saw anything as the last. Right. But last week she was in the hospital. that On that Wednesday, she transitioned on Saturday. On that Wednesday, I came in and I said, baby, I want to do something, but I don't know what, what to do. And God said, just be there. She said, well, Dad, if God told you just to stand, well, then just stand. Just be right. here. And that's enough. Right. So anyway, I, I, I talk more than I wanted to. No, no, no. Listen, but I, it, but I it's, it's just about just be there. Right. You know. Give yourself a break. You don't have to solve the problems. You don't have to be everything to everybody. Right. But you got to show up. And it's up. hard for people that, you know, for men and again, black men, black men who have also been successful in some ways, you, you overcome all of these barriers, all of these constructs, and you feel like, okay, I have to do this. I have to do all of this. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I have to figure out a way to solve this. And when you can't, you feel... Probably, I, mean, I imagine, I would just talk about how I would feel, and, and extremely depressed and defeated. Yeah. Well, and a lot of black men who, who know they don't have but so much capability and they believe that they're supposed to walk in with all the answers, they don't even bother walking yeah, in. A lot, a yeah, lot of times, yeah, that's a problem that's too. That's at the genesis of, of why people do give up because they, they, they recognize their frailties, but they exaggerate them to such a degree is they, they miss what they can do right. because of what they think they can't do. And, and that, that's, a, that's a pressure uh, that we put on ourselves as men and as black men particularly. Absolutely. So you know, going to the heart of your question, you know, I was, I was homeless when I was 16. So you know, I, I think that if I had to sort of replay in my mind what I would do differently in this experience that I had is that um, I think I would have really appreciated, um, you know, Michael said, look, the greatest thing was being a dad. I loved being a dad, but I really didn't recognize the, 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 the amazing um, power of being a dad. And it's kind of hard to, right? Yeah. A, a saying that said, uh, I forgot who said it, but he said, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. That's right. You know, all of a sudden you go through these days where you're grinding it out, grinding right. it out, you're right. trying to do whatever you, what you can to provide the family, to provide right. more income, whatever it is, so right. on and so forth. You go through the days stressful, you come home, kids are yelling, whatever, wife gets out, whatever, right. wife gets on your nerves, so on and so forth, real right. life issues. Right. For like long days and all of a sudden you look up and you have a moment like you did and, right. and you, it's over. more than others, it's, it's, it's time's up. Yeah, right? and, and I think that I think that I would have sooner while I was climbing the corporate, you know, gauntlet and trying to do all the things that I believed my family wanted to do to provide a life for them and give them the kind of if I knew then 
what I ended up knowing at the time in which, you know, Kia transitioned, <clears throat> I would have been even a better dad. I would, I mean, I, my kids would tell you that I'm a great dad in right. their opinion. But when I evaluate my own uh, fatherhood, um, gosh, there were some things that I, I could have done differently. Not that I live with regrets. Right. Yeah. It's just that. But it's, it's about, it, it, it's it, about it, lessons. It, lessons you can learn for right. yourself and lessons you can pass on to others. That's I, right. I, that's what I took from this book. I was right. like, I can improve as a father a yeah. lot. I was yeah. like, now looking at this, like, because I, you know, we fall, we fall into these same traps day to day. All of us do if it, we're not careful. It is reflective. And by the way, I think, you know, I know that all of the fathers, including Michael, would say this, but. We, we don't want anybody, any other man to be part of this club. We don't want to welcome any new members. No, I hear you. If it was only us 10, we would be fine. And only seven could participate in the book. I don't know. But inevitably, there will be. Yes, there will be. And, and here's the point. The three men that didn't participate in the book, um, two of them, we got to the point of actually being able to interview them. They said, I, I cannot do this. I cannot talk about this. I have not been able to talk about it since they died, and I can't talk about it now. I want to, right? but I can't. And the other father, the third person in that triad, he was ready to talk about it. He had lost his daughter in October, so right after Krista, you know, he lost Danielle. And he was ready to talk about it. And then in January, when we had our pre-meeting, his wife died. Right. And so I said to him, wow, that's a lot. I said, listen, I, I, I can't even allow you to participate in this book because guess what? You're not in the frame of mind where you're going to be able to get through this because this is hard work. Yeah. You know, people have asked uh, Michael and I, we had a conversation when we were on the book tour, early part of the book tour in L.A. And we both came to that particular evening saying, I don't know if I can get through this evening. Right. Because every time we do it, it's hard. I'm sure. But the only reason that we do it and the reason that we want to do things like your your podcast, and we're so grateful that you've given us a platform to do this, is because we believe that there are people out there that need to understand how to navigate not only the journey loss, but the loss that black men feel every day. Loss of job, loss of dignity, right. loss of respect, <laughs> loss of feeling out of control, not out of control emotionally, but not having control over their destiny. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, and so we, we talk about loss in a, in a broader sense. And we take that message of loss of our children to the fact that yes, you can celebrate a child if you've lost them. And I certainly want to get to David Noak's story because yeah. I think that goes to a lot of it. Yes. Finish your point because I and we'll get there later, but I have a couple follow-ups. Yeah, da David David's story is a is a compelling one for all of us. Um, and I've known David fifty-five years. Yeah. Uh, but but the reality is is that um, we believe all of us, and there are some of us in the collective, which is what we call ourselves that have never been able to participate in any of the parts of the book tour because we've gotten all from them that they have to give. Yeah, it makes sense. They have nothing left. <laughs> As you said, everybody, the path is the path, the process is the process. Yeah. People people have a different path, a That's different right. process for how they go through grieving. Right. The important thing is to acknowledge that you need to grieve, though, <laughs> and be vulnerable. Right. And and the fact that some, uh, you know, some of your participants even went through this is amazing because a lot of people can do it. I'm yeah. not sure if I could too, and I consider myself a pretty strong person. Right, right. Um, you know, a couple of follow up questions to what you guys said. Two, how do you advise someone who is dealing with this issue? And in you've talked about folks that are yeah. in, that even in your circle mm -hmm. that have even done this, uh, that are still struggling. There yeah. are people that are on a different 
part of that spectrum who might be in deep depression, mm -hmm. I'm sure you both know, have some feeling of where they're at. Because mm -hmm. uh, you, I imagine, have been there. And from, from what I read, you've, you've, you've had to move past there and take, your, take yourself past there in days when you have days that are challenging, when yep. a memory comes up or something sparks it, I'm sure. I still cry every day. Yeah. How do you, my question is, mm -hmm. I guess, that's the first question. How do you deal with that? And what is your advice to others who are dealing with a similar issue? Second question, kind of related, uh, particularly for, for Michael, but, but you know, both of you are men of faith as I am. Uh, and I think both of you have said this has strengthened your relationship with God, strengthened your mm -hmm. relationship with Jesus. Yeah. My question is how, given the result, being mm -hmm. really honest, right? right? How, given the result that, you know, you prayed and prayed and you, you were faithful, you, you followed the path and things didn't turn out how you would have given everything to make sure that they did. Yeah. Those two questions, if you can take either order you like, uh, but yeah, I, I think those I, are two questions. I I'll have. take the second one and Michael, you take the first one. Um, so, so given the result, um, I want you, you to answer both. Don't worry. We got okay, time. We, we answer got one, both. We got, we got, we got another 30 minutes. We got one person in our collective who lost both his children. Um, Lavelle Thornton. And, and Lavelle is, is a strong man of faith. And initially, he was mad at God. Yeah. And he said so. It's understandable. <laughs> right? Uh, but I think for him, just like us, um, I, I was never mad at God about Kia because what I realize is the journey of a person of faith is one of rocky roads. It, it, it is fraught with disappointment. And, and even though you may pray for something, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It only means that you are demonstrating that you believe enough in, in your faith and, and the foundation of your faith that if anybody can handle it, God can. Right. Um, but it may not be in his purview. And by the way, because he is God and you're not then therefore uh, you don't know the outcome. So the only thing you can do is- And you can't see the whole picture. You I tell you, you only got a, you only have a partial a view. Snippet. A snippet. A really small one. Yeah, like very, whole... a very small one. And, and it's based, and it's selfish. Because mm -hmm. by the way, because he can see everything, if you believe that, then you believe that he sees the entire puzzle of how this piece called Kia fits into that puzzle. Right. And so you, you don't have the luxury of that. The second part of that And I also was, say, just looking at that, and often, I think with the way we can see it as people is that sometimes life only makes sense looking back. And right. you can see it sometimes, and you're like, why in the world didn't I get that job? Right. And then you're like, oh my God, thank God I didn't get that job. So, but you can't tell until sometimes 20 years later. And then, you know, of course, God, you have eternity. It was real time for me. So I, yeah. was the, I was a candidate to be the president of a university the year that Kia was diagnosed. We were going through the process. The final decision came down in April. Kia was diagnosed in February. In April, um, I was one of two men left standing for the job. The, everything pointed to the fact I was gonna get the job. Right. Everything. Right. And then I didn't get the job. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I called them all kinds of names you know, under my breath. <laughs> Because I was like, how could you do that? How could yeah. that not happen? Even though Kia had been diagnosed, I had no concept that she would not make it through. Yes. My, my brain would not accept the fact Absolutely. that she wasn't well, going that makes to be sense. here. So yeah. I, that would have just been I was going to get the job and I was going to move her to wherever I was going. Right. And she was going to be with me and her son and we were going to make it happen. 
But then realizing that when she passed away in July, it made a lot of sense to me why I didn't get that job in April. Because yeah. I was in no condition in July and forward to, to run a university or run anything for that matter. I had to piece myself back together. You know, th there was a time I just shut myself off from everything because I just could not accept that I was not going to talk to my daughter again yeah. on this side. So, you know, what I would say is, is that I think coming to the realization, the role of who God really is, is despite the outcome, it's your realization that you live in the spirit realm. You're here physically, but God is a spirit, and therefore you can't see that, you can't right. control that, you can't do anything about that because the the, the kinds of things that affect the spirit world are not visible to our eyes. Is that also how you coped with it, your faith and your spirituality, is how you went through the coming it, it out of is. depression? It is. It's, it's how I said to myself, okay, God, you, you're going to have to help me understand this. Now, now mind you, my, it took a toll on my body. I got shingles. Oh, wow. I had a heart attack. There were a number of wow. physical things that happened to me after she passed away. Sure. It makes sense. Some of it while I was writing the book. Yeah. And, and the point is, is that, um, you know, I learned a great deal about myself. So as a man, when I think about, you know, how did I, how, what advice would I give to people? I would say, you must find a foundation a place where you can find strength. You know, I, I use the metaphor often about having a cup like we have here. And oftentimes you give so much that the cup is empty. And if you don't have things that refill that cup, it, it will continue to be dry. Right. You, my faith, and I know this about Michael B and most of the men in the collective, is that they have found their faith to be a reservoir of replenishment. Right. a way in which to uh, refill that cup. So you have to find something. Right. If it's not God, you need to find something. You need to find a community. You need to find something, something. that gives you an anchor, a strength That's right. that you can lean That's on. Right. Uh, the second thing is you must do is recognize that celebrating your children um, is as good an antidote for um, focusing on and, and being uh, um, connected to them forever celebrating them as opposed to mourning them. Mm, celebrating what, as opposed to mourning. Right. What I said <clears throat> in the beginning of, of the book, and we actually do a promo we have that we did for the website, is we said, you know, this book is not about mourning. And you, and you said earlier on, you know, it's hard to get through. It's only hard to get through for many people because they, be, they approach it from a place of sadness. Sure. We didn't approach it from a place of sadness. That didn't mean that we weren't sad along the way. No, it makes sense. But we approached it from. There's certainly hope. There's certainly hope in the book too. Yeah, it's a. Once you get past the, you can get past the, the material. The gravity of what happens. It's gravity. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Is what is what you know sort of shakes you right. Yeah, some of the stories you're reading it just to, you know, uh, I can't remember which 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 father it was, but. I like somebody died earlier. I said, "Wait, somebody else is about to die," and that's, that's what I was yeah. looking at. And yes. it was like, so, oh, so, so, so yeah, you Ralph, feel that you Ralph, feel it coming. Ralph's daughter, um, yeah. Marla. Now, Ralph, Marla used to babysit Kia. Wow. Okay, and and Marla has been gone twenty five years. She died in a plane crash. But what happened was is that Marla, um, Marla's boyfriend, 
fiance. Yeah, I remember this was a pastor, Rufus. Rufus. Yep. And Rufus was about to be ordained. She was going to his ordination in Pittsburgh from Chicago. Yep. When she was in law school, and and then a year and a half later, he dies. Yep. And the point is, you go, wow. And he told Ralph, he said, "Man, I just don't know if I could live without Marla." And sure enough, he didn't. Wow. That's you know, Mike Michael. So particular. We had a we've had conversations offline talking about faith and faith not being tied to the outcome. Yeah, I was just talking about that. Yeah, I was just going to comment on that. Is that in that you know one of the things that I learned from Krista in the process is she's the one that was she had a a, a really a really uh, telling conversations like with her doctor one time, and she they were. Given her all kinds of information about, you know, why they would or would not do, uh, or would or did or didn't want to do additional treatments, <clears throat> and uh, and one doctor said to her, uh, and she was on a breathing mask at this <clears throat> time. One doctor said to her, "Well, I understand." She said, "No, you don't. I'm on this side of the mask. You're on the other yep, side of the mask. Right. <laughs> I understand." And so. Krista being on the on that side of yeah. the mass, when she continued to have hope and to have faith uh, to her last breath, of which I was holding her when she took her last breath, um, uh, you know that taught me something. And what it taught me was you can't get too caught up or tied to the outcome of your prayer. Right. Your job is just to pray mm-hmm. and to be faithful. Mm-hmm. And God will always be faithful. Mm-hmm. And so whatever the outcome of your prayer is, is what you have to accept. And it doesn't mean that you don't. That I, I prayed until my daughter took her last breath right. that she would live. Mm-hmm. She hoped until she took her last breath that she would live. But she didn't. And my faith grew because I started to understand that faithfulness is not about the outcome of your prayer. God is not a God that you just simply uh, give your wish list to and he brings you gifts. <laughs> yeah, he's not Santa Claus. Santa yeah, yeah, Claus. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't want to go there, but, yeah. that, but, yeah. but so, so. Santa so Claus is something we make to, uh, to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, right. go ahead. Exactly. So you got to be careful. Sorry, kids, you're listening. Go yeah. ahead. So you, so you got to be careful not to, not to allow, uh, not to get too tied to the outcome of your prayer. Uh, and if you don't, and you recognize that, and, and I think about, uh, just to use this, the book in, in context, uh, everybody in the book love their children. I would give, I would take a bullet. I'd take a bunch of bullets for, for any of my children. Right. Um, and if I had the capability to feel that kind of love and willingness to sacrifice for my child, I cannot even imagine how much God loves me. Exactly. And so... Um, the faithfulness of God is, 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 is perfect. And so I have to be careful that even when, that, that sometimes God can't give me what I pray right. for because it is not in my best interest. Right. And while it is hard to accept the fact that uh, Chris is moving through this life uh, over a 28 year period. Uh, it was not what I wanted, but it fell. It it, it falls in God's plan for uh, uh, for the, the benefit of yeah. everybody, including her. You know, then 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 I then I'm okay. You know, right. because and it's and it allows you to be faithful. Right. You know, and, and it we talked about you to this pray. too, Michael. Like we. 
you know, the fact is, if it was if, if your relationship with God or with anyone for that matter, because, uh, you know, if, if your relationship is just about an outcome, it's not even a real relationship. It's a transaction. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. like a, it's like. I give you the prayers it's to quid, get the outcome. It's quid pro quo, right? It's quid pro quo. That's not a relationship, right? Relationships are binary. Well, yeah. the relationships are covenants. Right. You know, we live in a culture that that uh, is very contractual. Yep. You know, you do this and I do that. Right. Yep. And if you don't do what you contractually uh, commit yourself to doing, then there's a penalty. Yep. Well, there is no penalty in this in a covenant. You right. know, and and relationships work. Uh, that are covenants. They don't work when they're contractual. Right. Uh, so that's the thing that I think... And that, that goes I'm to our kids, that. too. I just, just came up with this, right? Like, if I give you this, I provide for you, then you should do what I want you to do in your career, which in is, your pursuits. Which is right? really problematic. It's really problematic. <laughs> I, 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 I want to tell this, this this one story, and my old... And, and Maria and, and, and my son, Michael, will probably be mad at this. But <laughs> I told Maria... You get a car uh, based on the scholarships you get in college. Uh, she got some scholarships. She multiplied those scholarships. Sounds for said, Dad, I want to be in bed. But said, no, 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 baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's a scholarship. Hey, she played your hey, she, she, <laughs> I said, that's, I said, I'm She's buying. Yes, he is. He got I'm it. I'm buying uh, a car that's, that is the equivalent of one year's scholarship. Right. And so we had all that. My son, on the other hand, struggled through college a little bit. It just and I, and I had to give him some stories and let him know that, hey, dad struggled too. And when I bought him a car, I said, you're getting this car not, you didn't have to do anything to get this car. You're getting this car because I love you. Mm-hmm. Right. Period, end of story. Right. There is nothing that I do for you uh, that you have that you have to earn. My love is free. Right. And I'm going to do what I do because I love you. Right. Period. In right. the story. Right. And so, and that doesn't mean that you don't create relationships where your children earn things. Right. Because you got to teach them incentives and things like that. All that. All that's good. But at the end of the day, your relationship with your child or any relationship, that covenant is the foundation is love and you do what you do because you love them even when you have this you earn things and you end up giving them something based on what they do to earn it it's still given because of love yeah well that that that's that's an important point and you didn't mention this yet rob but but i think it's a it's a nice um opportunity to mention one of the things one of the chapters in the book is called not one without the other and, and the reason that that particular chapter came to me was that I really wanted to emphasize the fact that um, the most important thing we can do for a child, both mother and father, even if you're not together, is the nurturing of that child. That, that once you have a child, I don't care how you feel about each other, you need to make sure that your, that your practices and your, the way in which you approach parenting is predicated on the love that you both have for the child. It doesn't mean that one gets to punish the other. It doesn't mean that you get to, you know, withhold the time if you happen to be the parent uh, who is is with the child. Um, you know, we have a lot of conflict in the black community about children. Uh, children get put in the middle of these situations. The right. mother says, "I want to, I want to take." 
take uh, my child and you're not going to see him or her until I say so, until you pay more child support. Yep. That is that is dangerous. That is dangerous. And I want to get to that point a little more. Uh, my sure. mother has said this to me all the time and being divorced and now being in a good relationship, I could. I can definitely say it's a true statement. She yeah. said, who you choose as a partner or a spouse will be 90% of your pleasure or your pain. That's right. Choose wisely, son. That's wow, that's, that's profound. That yeah. Is. That's that profound. Is. And true. That is. Yeah. Very true. That, that's, Very that true. is profound, though. Very true. Um, but I was talking about, you know, uh, this idea of not one without the other. And, you know, we hear a lot, another myth that circulates in the black community that's used actually in all kinds of di diagnostic and empirical data analysis is that there's so many single moms, there's no fathers in the house, yeah. and the reason that the children are dysfunctional is because there's no dad in the yeah, house. That's what we hear all the time. Uh, yeah. Oh, so. the, the reality of it is, is a lot of women choose to be single, and it's not because... Um, a man left them sometimes, many times, they often opt out from the father of their children. And it's their choice. Now, if they haven't found someone else that they'd like to share their life with, that's certainly understandable. But it doesn't suggest that the man always walked away from the children, which is the primary and it's thesis an important lesson. that we use. And it's an important, first of all, important lesson in multiple points. One, it's the negative image and narrative that's put out yes. that the reason why the black community are suffering is because there's not enough black male fathers. That's true. Second part that I think is really important uh, is the is the pressures, the constructs that are put upon black men. I think David Noakes' story, am I saying the name right? Yes. Says it well when you, when you and we're not going to get into all of his story because yeah. I want people yeah. to read the book. Right. But essentially, there are multiple layers. He had challenges with his ex-wife who who put out a false narrative about him right. that the courts accepted as true That's without right. any evidence. That's correct. And, 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 That's correct. And, and with clear evidence showing otherwise. Right. Because it's so hard for people to accept something, uh, to, to reject a reality that's been implanted. Yes. It's hard for Americans. It's hard for white Americans. But here's the key point for us. Yeah. It's hard for black Americans. Absolutely. It's hard for black women and black men to not buy into this negative stereotype. Right. And I think what one of the lessons that I've drawn from this book is that we have to make sure that we don't buy into this. Absolutely. That we begin to disrupt this uh, because it's it's really hurting our communities um, and we already have enough to deal with but That's right. we have to figure out how we change it internally we can't change any, anything externally before we even change anything internally that's, that's right that's one of the things I gather from the book you can that's tell right. me if I'm off on that no 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 I think no, you're I think right you're and, and right. I think if you if you think about one of the other objectives that I that I try to um, be foundational to our writing was the idea that um young black men who are not yet fathers, what can they take away from the book? Because right. one of the things that you know people often ask you is that you, you read the book and you say, okay, so what? You wrote the book, okay. Right. Uh, so a very, very sort of, you know, uh, direct view is that so what do you what's what's the what's the importance of the book right. and one of the importance of the book is to say to young men black men particularly who are not yet fathers is that here are fathers that you can you can look at and look at our lives and they look like you 
They not only look like you physically, but, but many of them have had the same and have experienced some of the same things that you're experiencing. They've been poor. They've yeah. been black. They've been, been discriminated, without, they've been discriminated, they've been discriminated against. With, against. Yep. They, they've been divorced. They've been without love. They've been, you know, all they, didn't have the, a, they didn't have a father in their they, lives. They didn't have yep. a father in their lives. All these characteristics exist. So I don't want you to think that this book doesn't apply to you because this is you. Yeah. Now, if you've had an experience that was different, that's great. But the reality of it is, is most of us, um, much to our chagrin, have experienced many of the characteristics that make up this collective. Of or we know, if we don't know it directly, we know someone. We know somebody. We know somebody. I, I think everybody here can Absolutely. attest to that. Particularly, I want to think about David Noak's story. And yeah. one point I want to get on is the fact of what his son went through. Yeah. For yeah. several reasons. Yeah. One, the complications with the mother and what she put on those boys because of her negative experiences, probably my guess is with her father or with others or her view of black men. Right. She put that on her children. Yeah. Um, she sounded like she might have had her own mental challenges and issues. Yeah. And those were passed to her children. Um, but society believed them. And then that, end up, that ended up affecting his son, who went to jail for, I don't think, something he should have gone to jail for. Yeah. That story. But, he, but here's the key point in that. I think the hope in that is that his son still wanted to be a father. Yes. Despite all those things all happening, happening to right. him, he still wanted to be a father. So there's still, if he could find a way to want to be a father, more of us can also do that too. Um, but how do you now, how do you, because you, you, you said a point that you're, I say every, every black man's story is in here one way or another. Yeah. Someone who's going through a time where they're, where, where they're, where they're literally up against the things like David, David's son was. Yeah. What, what, Advice and guidance would you give them at that point, knowing that you know things have been unfair to you? How do you go forward and, and, and still have a productive view as a, 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 a society and as a father? So, it, so the question. My su- question makes sense. Yeah, it does, but it suggests also that there is one way to do it potentially. True. Um, and and what I would say is that there is no. I could give you no answer that would satisfy the various um, complexities that would make up um, the story of all of us. What I would say, though, uh, in terms of giving us, you know, at least hope toward the future is um, I always say that we should treat every conversation as a classroom. Every conversation we have with somebody, every book we read, every time we engage, every time we hear a story, um, how can we actually learn and get insight from that that helps us on our journey? Um, And I think that for um, the biggest Achilles heel sometimes for us as black men, and even us as people, particularly in America, where only 26% of all Americans read a couple of books a year. Yeah. most of them get it from uh, Facebook and Instagram and think right. they're informed. It's, it's, we got more information, but we're less informed as a culture, right. in my opinion. That's it, across the board, but go you're, ahead. You're right. I had to just put that nugget you're, there. You're right. <laughs> um, it's really to listen. It's to, be, it's to be a great listener and to continue to build on the knowledge that helps you navigate the world. 
we live in a knowledge economy now. We don't, we don't live in a tech economy or a capitalistic economy. We live in a knowledge economy. And what that simply means is that we're not taught really how to compound learning, not information, because information is noise. We get a lot of information, but knowledge is actually something to be applied, something to, to be taken for and put in the, our daily bucket and actually work it through, see how it works out. Right. Well, if you took the book and you said, I got seven men who have given me some insight into what black fatherhood is from their perspective and their journey, that's knowledge. Now, how can I apply that to my own life? What are the lessons? I mean, you mentioned some of them at the outset uh, of our conversation together here about what you've taken away from the yeah. book. The question is, is can we encourage each other to look for resources? Mental health counseling is another yes. opportunity. Yep. Um, if someone was just very brief, because this is what you do as a, line, a line of profession, they're looking right. for help, they're looking for guidance. Is there yeah. anywhere they can go online, any suggestions yeah. or resources they can use? I think it's important that we yes. give them that. What do you? Yes. Where, where should they go? So, in... in uh, Beyond in, reading the book. In, right. In, if you never read the book, but you came yeah. uh, by March of this year, we're going to be launching a, a, a private portal um, where you can actually go in and request uh, a consultation for free. Okay, when from, that's ready, let me know. I'll a, post from, it on. From a mental health counselor, because what we know is that the myth is, and, and actually the factual basis, many of us do not seek out mental health no. counseling. Um, we're told we're told lots of we got to be tough. We're also told, I think, is we all talked about our faith. I think God will work it out. Yeah, that's right. Just pray away. Yeah, just like, God will like, work yeah. it out. No, God is pray. not going to work it out. Yeah. I, I just want you to know, it's not that he won't be available to you, but he's not going to work out the mental gymnastics that you're playing in your head yeah. about why this is happening to you. Well, the story that my mother, go back to my mother, always said, and I'll get to the brief part of it. She said, you know, there's that story when someone said there was a flood coming. He said, well, what am I supposed to do? And a car came up, do you need a ride? Right. And then somebody else called and said, do you need something else? Yes. He went to the roof. The, yeah. the, the flood went to the roof and then the helicopter came and said, do you need some help? He yeah. said, no, I'm waiting on God. Yeah. And then, and then the, person, the person that died and right. said, well, what happened? Well, said, fool, did you see what yeah. I said? I sent, you, I sent you a car, I sent you a boat, yeah, I, I sent mean, you a helicopter, and you still did didn't know it. And right. so oftentimes we're blinded by um, even the help resources that are available to us. So, so you know, if you, if you, uh, David would tell you that this was one of the most challenging, but yet one of the most helpful processes that he's gone through since David Jr. passed away. Right. Um, but what he'd also tell you is that, you know, he, I asked him one day, I said, you know, how do you feel about God? And he said, I don't hate God. I'm just, I'm just confused, you know. All of us, and, and, and all I, of us have honestly. I hope some. And I, think, I don't think anybody's speaking honestly if they haven't been there before. Exactly. Even I, I haven't been through your level of tragedy. Right. But I've been there before too. Yeah, and and I think what I love about him in, in that regard is that he is about as authentic as you can get. I mean, David is raw. He is, he is always going to be real with you. You're not going to get, you know, he's not going to sugarcoat it. I got that from you the know, book too. He, he's, he's just not going to do that. And, and when I was doing the editing, because I edited all the stories, when I was doing the editing, there were things that David had in his in his chapter. I said, I, I <laughs> you got to take that out. Hey, bro, take that out. We, we can't say that. There's, <laughs> some, that. there's some limits. Yeah. I'm glad you're honest, but I like, we only tell. I can't say that, David, because they're not going to understand what you're trying to say. I get it. Yeah. You know, some people might. Boy, but I want to make sure that we, you know, we yeah. don't get somebody moving too far to the other side right. uh, about what you're saying. But, but the point is, is that, you know, um, I think. I think, you know, having a conversation like the one we're having today is another opportunity is 
how do we bring men together to have open and honest conversations? Because we don't trust that people won't use what we feel against us. Against us, exactly. And therefore, finding a safe space in which to have this conversation. We have this collective of men. We have all laid it bare. Yeah. I mean, one of the most wonderful things. And can I say a point on that? Because I think, and I I want you to get back to that, is as we develop, one of the things I had to learn is that when you have relationships, if you just if you're open first, I'm just talking about any type of relationship. You're open, right. know that there's going to be people that are going to take advantage of that. That's right. But if your view of the world is that I can't do this because I will get taken advantage of, then you will miss a lot of great opportunities to develop great relationships, great knowledge, yeah, great advice because you've allowed yourself to be jaded by uh, one, two, three, four, whatever, how many experiences. That, that's not, that's right. not representative of the sample of the world. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I, I, I take it even to the next level to say that um, you should be fearless about being able oh, to... Okay. Yep. You should be fearless. That's what you started. Right. And then we'll get ready to wrap up. I have one final question. Essentially, they will wrap up for both of you guys. You you should be fearless about the the level of um, confidence you have about being authentically real, who you are. You you should always strive to be to get people to see who you really are. Um, because then you don't have to fake it. Right. Then you don't have to put on any airs. You don't have to, you know. And, and it requires you to know, this is, we're, we're not going go down this path because right. it takes too long, but it also requires you to know and be self-aware of who you are to be there. And that's a, and that's whole, a whole other struggle journey. and journey and that's right. continual challenge that's right. that I promise we need to have another podcast on. Okay. I got, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yep. I got it. But, but anyway, I, I would say that, um, you know, the book really also speaks to women. It doesn't just speak to black men. Speak, tell, to, tell, tell me what you mean by that. It speaks to black women about under, giving them some insight into who we are. Because um, many women look at men from their lens. Yeah. As we tend to look at women from our lens. Makes That's sense. Right. But the real opportunity for growth is when you can suspend your lens and actually take in new information that reshapes it. And that is the that is the journey of learning. That is the opportunity to engage and really take into consideration there are other variables that you hadn't considered. We hope that the book, I mean, frankly, we've gotten a lot of women, uh, even here in D.C. when we had our, uh, when we had the book event here in D.C., one of the women stood up and she said, you know, so how can I help my man? Right. He, we haven't lost a child, but just... How do I communicate with him? And my answer to her was, I want you to think about how good a listener you are. Because one of the most interesting things about us as black men is that we don't feel heard. Um, We often feel like nobody's going to listen, so what's the point? But the point is, is that when you have someone in your life who is committed to you, you committed to them, um, that actually being a great listener, being willing to hear them, hear that voice, hear that pain. Those are the things that that make a difference in relationships. When a man feels heard, he can actually navigate the world just a little bit easier after you've listened to him. 
That's so true. I can say that having a, I see that now, which I didn't realize in a relationship, having someone who is a really great listener. Um, I, that's, that's, that's a very profound and a very true statement. Final question for both of you. As you look at this book, your, you, you created the book and your contribution to it, I want to ask you both of you, if you had a billboard or Google ad to be more uh, current to the times that symbolize you, a statement, your belief system, whatever, based upon this book or based on your personal philosophy, mm-hmm. what would that say and why? Um, let me start. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think there, there are two things, and, it, and this kind of relates to, to some of the other things that, that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. And one is, is, is uh, perspective. You know, one of the things that I think uh, is hard to do is to get perspective. Um, I heard something the other day. Um, Sterling K. Brown, I believe his name is, the gentleman that's on... Um, this Is uh, Us. On This Is Us. And he commented right. about his father. He lost his father when he was 10 years old. And he had a smile on his face. And he said the last thing that he... that The, the, the last uh, interaction between him and his father, his father had a massive heart attack. They were taking his father out, and his father winked at him. And that was the last thing. And he said uh, he's raising his children. He has a son now who's 10 years old. He said, I know exactly what, what I need to do uh, uh, up until my kids are 10 years old. So after that, I'm on more. He said, but I had an incredible opportunity to learn from a man for 10 years. And I thought this guy was just happy that he had his father for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I thought about, I had Christopher almost three times that long. Mm-hmm. Wow. Man. You know, I had an incredible relationship with this wonderful young lady who happened to be a product of me for almost 30 years. Wow, how wonderful is that? And that's perspective. You know, that's perspective. And now, since I heard Sterling K. Brown's point about his tenure relationship with his father, I feel really good about those 28 uh, 28 and a half years. Um, The other thing is that one of the things that Krista taught me during this time period, um, not just while she was sick, but particularly during this time period, and I I go back and read some of her Facebook posts or texts she sent me, um, uh, particularly during college, uh, is forgiveness. You know, is being able to just forgive because, period. You know, just just forgive because, just forgive period. because. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things that forgiveness does is that it all it forces slash allows you to see pieces of people that are the good parts of those persons. You know, um, and one of the things that, that, that she said, she put in a, in a Facebook post about me when she was in college, she said, I, I thank God for my daddy. She always called me daddy and, and the other two called me dad. Mm-hmm. I thank God for my daddy for teaching me to see the good in people, even when it doesn't show all the time. Mm-hmm. And so. But some of that, but most of that is really all about forgiveness. I mentioned to Rob a little earlier, and I think I've said this to you before, Larry, is that I did this, this uh, study on forgiveness during uh, a really difficult time in my life. And, 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 and what part of that I found was that the Lord's Prayer, very centerpiece of that is about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And the first part of that is, Lord, forgive me yeah. for the things I've done. You know, and, Starts with self-awareness. Yeah, I, didn't even, I, didn't, I didn't see and that. And if you recognize 
that you're a pain in the behind, no matter how good you are, That's to right. at least one person. Probably more than one, but go ahead. Probably more than one, but at least one. <laughs> Definitely more than one. Yeah. At least one, it allows you to give forgiveness to others so much easier, you know? And so living a life of forgiveness and constantly asking for forgiveness and constantly giving forgiveness. You know, those are the things I think that um, as uh, this, this whole notion of perspective, if you're a black man and, and that's that's and, and then this other notion of forgiveness, including yourself. Yeah. Including yourself. You know, yeah. I, I, and so, you know, I didn't even know who my and, and my dad was a wonderful person. I didn't even know who my dad was till I was 13 years old. Wow. And my dad spent a lot of time uh, in the latter part of his life saying to me, I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you. And I, you know, and, and, I, and I on his in, in the last week of his life, I said, Dad, you got to forgive yourself, man. I forgive you. I'm fine. I love you. You're a wonderful person. You, you, nobody wakes up and says, let me see if I can screw up somebody's life today. No, nobody does that. Right. Who's, like who's saying. Right. Um, but, and so we have to be careful. We have to be careful to make sure that we practice forgiveness on a regular basis. Yeah. And my, my billboard would, would, would just say simply celebrate every day. Yeah. Um, what I really want in that context, particularly as it relates to black fathers. And I say this uh, in a number of different ways. I want you, after reading the book, hearing about the book, or being exposed to this podcast, I want you to go home and hug your kids a little bit more. I want you to celebrate them. Don't talk about what their grades were or what they were not, or what they did wrong, or you know, the things that they, they didn't clean up their room properly. You know, um, one of the other most important things about black men, to the woman who asked the question, I said, not only be a, a good listener, but when is the last time you hugged him? You just hugged him. You just went to him and hugged him. There was no whole lot of conversation. There was no whole lot of anticipation. It wasn't sexual. It was a hug of comfort. It was a hug of a safe space. Men need to feel safe, no different than women need to feel safe. Wow. And we don't, we, true. don't we just need that. Sometimes we just need a hug. And, and by the way, we find in life, there are very few hugs come our way. Yeah. Um, and, and the older we get, the fewer hugs we, we get. And sometimes it happens when we're kids. I certainly know that was the case for me. So if you don't have that, it's very difficult for you to give them, but when you become a father, you have to realize the importance of giving those hugs. But what women can do in our lives, those who love us and those who we love, they need to learn how to hug us too. And so being a great listener is important, but being able to exchange that, that, that hug, and therefore that means not hugging just your man, but also hugging your children and every father. One father told me, he said, I read the book and I, was, I finished the book when I was at work and I left my job and went to my kids' school and the first thing I did was call them towards me and I just hugged them for a minute. I didn't say anything, I just hugged them. He said, because it was such a revelation to me to understand the importance of hugging my children. Yep. So when we see them, hug them. Yeah. 
that's that's a level of vulnerability that's important as well. So that's what my billboards would say. Well, that's that's great, uh, Dr. Lawrence Drake, Michael Bennett. The book is Color Him, Color Him Father. I, I recommend it for anyone. I hope you read it. Thank you so much for listening. 